Good afternoon. Thank you for the kind invitation and the opportunity to speak with this group. Um, I will be uh, talking about uh, off-label use of medications, and I have a um, does investigative work for um, AstraZeneca and Abbott. So before we get started, if I can just have a, a show of hands of um, how many people have uh, seen somebody with hydradenitis suppurativa. Okay, great, a lot number of you. Um, now, thinking back on those patients, how many uh, of you have s uh, seen that patient, um, made that diagnosis, but maybe initially that patient did not come with that diagnosis, meaning you either made it after the fact or it was an impartial skin exam? Okay. All right. So I think many of you will um, sympathize or understand why this was actually the logo of one of the patient support groups for this hydroadenized separativa. This was the hydroadenized separativa USA uh, patient support group. And this is the logo they picked. And if you look at that, um, it really kind of goes at the heart of some of the issues related to this particular disease. Um, this disease, although most of you resoundingly stated that you've seen patients, oftentimes it's not a disease that patients disclose on their own. And you know, subsequently, we oftentimes think of it as a hidden disease. This leads to delay in diagnosis, reluctance on the patient's part to disclose that they have the disease, and oftentimes, we, it's also an orphan disease. I mean, as, uh, since our practice is mainly dermatologic, how many times have these patients, because of their location, have not been properly diagnosed by either their family practice doctor or their gynecologist, or probably most commonly, the emergency room? Because the disease, because of how it presents, um, it doesn't reside necessarily in a single place. And so really, as people who primarily see skin disease, Oftentimes, it falls to us to make the definitive diagnosis and you know, try to um, institute treatment and um, interpret what the best uh, ways to do this. And if you think about it, we're actually in the best position with the tools that we have and the understanding of different skin diseases to, to do this. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, this disease and obviously some new directions that uh, I think will be very exciting in terms of how we treat this. So first, a little background. Um, this disease is described in the 1800s in France. Uh, the term hydroidinous separativa was actually coined by Vernou, um, basically based on this, the, the distribution clinically. So uh, hydra, referring to you know, kind of sweat, itis, inflammation, and separativa for separative uh, drainage. So the purulent drainage in areas where you classically have sweat glands. So this, I think that very much summarizes the disease. And for a long time, people thought that also dictated its pathogenesis and histology. And there was some initial early work that seemed to indicate that there was indeed inflammation around uh, the apocrine gland. And um, th there were some studies that was actually done at the University of Pennsylvania uh, many years ago that seemed to indicate that you can induce these lesions, and those uh, lesions uh, were caused by inflammation around the, the sweat glands. Um, but we're going to see that's actually, that concept is, is probably wrong. And uh, although we still use this term, uh, this, the pathogenesis has a lot more to do with acne, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. And so based on the number of hands that are raised, I'm not surprised at all. If you think about the prevalence is 1% to 4%. So that's a little bit, maybe about half the prevalence of psoriasis. So think about that for a second. That prevalence 
is very high. And that's a relatively common skin disease, although I'm sure if you guys thought about it in terms of the diagnosis and underdiagnosis, there are, there are many issues there. The onset's also usually on young folks, so people who may not access the healthcare system you know, in, a, in a regular fashion. So oftentimes, uh, these are people in their late 20s, early 30s that are finally being diagnosed. Uh, lesions in the, in the groin area is more common in women, and again, this location and all the demographic patterns we described oftentimes lead to delay and diagnosis. The clinical presentation, if we kind of apply our morphologic descriptions, is, is also a challenge because it doesn't present necessarily as a single primary lesion. It could be a nodule, it could be a pustule, it could be a cyst, it could be primarily comedones, right? And there are a lot of secondary changes. There can be scarring, there can be ulceration, there can be sinus tract formation, and the configuration uh, sometimes there are more plaques, sometimes they're linear. Um, the distribution is helpful, because usually uh, we do know that they t classically present in intratrigenous areas in a symmetric fashion. And color, the colors, depending on what time you catch lesions, can be primarily inflammatory and red, but sometimes there's bleeding and there are purpuric lesions, and there's some brown if there's, uh, particularly in darker colored patients, that can make diagnosis difficult. So if you looked uh, on, online or a classic textbook, this is probably uh, the, the, the picture that you'll see, that you'll see a classic axillary lesion that uh, has this large inflamed nodule and, and some draining sinus tracts. But they could also, uh, inframammary is also an intradigenous area where skin comes together. So if you kind of step back, you might not have obviously thought about this, but you know, same configuration inflamed nodules and this kind of uh, deep indurated plaque. Here's the, the lesions aren't so inflammatory, but you also see um, some small cystic lesions, uh, multiple comedones, and actually to the degree that they're actually hair loss in this area. This is also another example of uh, hydradenitis. And here you can probably see a little bit of a draining sinus tract. Clinically, these, uh, the, this disease presents after puberty. Invariantly, at some point, they are tender, um, and can be oftentimes confused with a, an abscess. Um, these, late, these lesions commonly spontaneously rupture, and there's that purulent discharge as part of the name. And recurrent flares oftentimes lead to scarring, and to the point of actually having you know, sinus tracts or these, these uh, chronic areas of, of drainage that, that are present. Multiple comedones, as, as you had seen, if you look carefully, are oftentimes present as well. It's actually a clue to diagnosis. Now, if you think about uh, some other uh, signs, an elevated body mass ha index has also been associated with this disease. Now, it's not oftentimes, uh, oftentimes we see this together, but it's not always. So I wouldn't say that it's all because patients are obese or overweight, but we tend to see it in higher frequency in, the, in this population. Active smokers are also more commonly to have severe disease. Oftentimes, if you ask carefully, uh, like acne, there's premenstrual flare in, in, in women. Arthritis is not uncommon. And if you really get into some of the issues with quality of life, impact on um, sexual activity, um, in terms of uh, type of work they can, they can uh, go to, how it impacts their ability to sit for prolonged periods of time, um, there's actually a very strong impact on the quality of life. Um, and for very chronic cases, I'm talking about you know, 10, 20, years of uncontrolled disease, particularly in the, in the groin area, can actually lead to development of uh, squamous cell carcinoma. So I promised you a little bit more discussion on the pathology. So the pathology really uh, is not so much based around the 
sweat glands, but around the hair follicles. And remember, these sites also, uh, under, the hair follicles in these areas also go, undergo maturation during puberty, right? They become, this, they transition from uh, more vellus hairs to more terminal hairs. Um, and again, that's a hormonally driven process. Um, the, the first steps are uh, developing uh, the small comedone, and uh, that comedone leads to uh, uh, rupture if, if there's a disruption of that comedone, uh, subsequent inflammation, and scarring. So let's take a look at what that looks like. So here's a, a picture of a, a patient with um, active but relatively non-inflammatory disease at this point. So mainly small cysts and comedones, and you can see those comedones uh, as these kind of patchless openings in their follicular orifice. So very much like comedonal acne, right? to the point where some, patient, uh, some people want to rename HS as acne inversa, so inverse distributed uh, acne. So you can see that why people would want to do that when you kind of see this type of presentation. Under the microscope, you'll see that you can see this uh, well-formed comedone, um, invagination of the epithelium with uh, hyperkeratosis. Um, these are some yeast forms that are very commonly colonized in this area. So again, not very inflamed, but present. Then you can get a clinically advancement to something that looks like this, where the patient has an, inf an inflamed lesion uh, that developed relatively acutely. So under the microscope, that comedone has ruptured and generating an acute inflammatory response uh, of uh, primarily um, histiocytes, and this, these histiocytes go, uh, histiocytes and neutrophils, so these, this, this is a more acute neutrophilic component, and the, it evolves into a more histiocytic inflammatory infiltrate. And then with time, with repeated uh, uh, bouts of this uh, inflammation, you're going to get this kind of characteristic, almost linear type of scarring pattern. And under the microscope, the skin adapts. So if you'll see on top, there's the epidermis. And underneath the epidermis, there's this tunnel, uh, literally a kind of a blind end tunnel, that is a sinus tract. And it's, it's epithelialized. So if you think about how, why the skin doesn't heal, you have an epithelialized surface. And so that no wonder it doesn't heal. If you put your hands together, that will never heal, right? So that's basically what is happening under the, this, uh, the skin for these patients. And you can see the kind of a, a well-formed, um, uh, again, sinus tract that, uh, that's, that's uh, epithelialized, and that is actually open to the, to the surface. So uh, schematically, you can get these, uh, for severe disease, these interconnected tunnels, almost like uh, gopher tunnels underneath the skin. So when you press on one area, you're actually going to get expression of pus and purulence in, an, in another, because there's different pockets where uh, these, these uh, sinus tracts collect and connect to the overlying epidermis. So you might think, well, when there's so much purulence, what does the typical microbiome, what does the flora say? Uh, in, in, these, in these areas. And interestingly, um, when you do a culture for these, uh, oftentimes you get either uh, a negative culture or you get mixed floor. So oftentimes they'll, the things that'll come back uh, would be you know, typical mixed skin flora. That might be the, 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 the thing that comes back for your, from your lab. Coag negative staph is very common. Um, sometimes you can get uh, staph aureus, uh, particularly if the person's been on antibiotics for a while and have, have, have developed some sort of um, uh, resistance, but again, that's not the typical situation. Um, if you're in a situation where you do anaerobic cultures in the typical derm office, that is not usually done. Uh, you can get 
uh, micro uh, aerophilic uh, species such as Peptostreptococcus that comes up. So there, are, there is a role for anaerobic areas. And if you think about anaerobes, particularly in the groin, that can play, play a role. But in general, these, these cultures are, are sterile or common skin mixed flora. Um, the pathogenesis is not well understood. There's certainly some overlap with acne, and that has informed some of our decisions about how we treat this disease. So there probably is some hormonal input. There is probably a role of, uh, of retinoids and impacting uh, development of, 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 um, of the, these uh, comedones. There probably is a role for inflammation, and particularly the role of innate immunity. As we're learning in acne, probably toll-like receptors do play a role, probably in response to this different flora that's there. Um, there is some evidence that uh, zinc might have an impact, so there's some on ongoing studies. But one key uh, difference is that there doesn't seem to be excess production of sebum. So uh, unlike acne, where excess production of sebum is important for developing that environment that uh, promotes uh, um, development of P. acnes, that's not necessarily the case. And you rarely find P. acnes growing out in, in, in these lesions. In fact, if careful uh, histologic studies have shown that, if anything, the uh, sebaceous glands in these areas tend to be shrunken as opposed to dilated. So there are some, some key differences. One important uh, thing to look out for uh, is that, uh, in general, HS is considered to be an acquired disease. But every once in a while, you will find pockets where a patient will describe, well, mom has this disease, my aunt has this disease, my sister has this disease. And indeed, uh, a, a cluster of, of, of mutations have been found to go back to this uh, gene called gamma secretase, which is actually a complex comprised of uh, multiple components. Um, the first described uh, in, a, in a multiple uh, studies in, in, in large, large Chinese families that impact the notch signaling pathway. So, uh, these patients have relatively severe, not just HS, as you can see, right, because they tend to have a, this kind of follicular occlusion tetrad appearance where they have severe nodule cystic acne, um, acne conglobata, HS, pyelonal cysts. So certainly related to kind of follicular occlusion, uh, but not, maybe not necessarily specifically HS. So there's certainly a lot of exciting work to being done as people start to map out the mechanisms from these uh, 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 familial types to, see, to, to underlie um, improve our understanding of the disease in general. So let's get back to the clinic. Um, usually the diagnosis is made clinically, right? So your clinical acumen uh, makes the key difference in the lives of these patients. And I think you're well prepared because you can recognize these abscesses, uh, inflamed nodules, and sinus tracts. They always tend to have this history of recurrence. So, so the, that if, if they keep telling you, oh, I keep having this again, I have this episode you know, six months ago and maybe a year before that, as a very clue tip off, uh, important tip off. And when they're symmetrically distributed, it's very unlikely to have a furuncle or an abscess that's symmetric, right? Um, on, on exam, um, you oftentimes have these kind of patchless or double barrel comedones that we've, we've looked at. And then if you're in the situation where you can get follow-up and they come back with, you know, I've been to the ER, they've cultured me and it hasn't come back and they think that come, you know, keeps coming back, that's also a clue. Um, I, the, the, uh, the evaluation I take is pretty uh, standard, so most of these patients can present after puberty. Um, a surgical history sometimes is helpful because if they get um, so repeated uh, incision and drainages, this can actually induce a scar that sometimes can confuse the morphology when you're examining this. So we'll, we'll see some of this one uh, on some of the surgical pictures that come up. In general, uh, um, 
the, there aren't really well-described medications that induce disease. However, um, there are rare reports of lithium actually making this disease worse. So every once in a while, you will have patients who might have something that when they start lithium, that, 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 that these uh, areas got worse. And again, they're associated with a, a follicular occlusion tetrad, acne. Um, and the last uh, pearl that I want to think about is make sure you screen for bowel symptoms. So ask, inquire about uh, GI upset, diarrhea, and that's not just because you might very well put them on an antibiotic and you want to set that baseline and, and how sensitive they are, but also um, there is an association with uh, this disease and um, inflammatory bowel disease, particularly Crohn's disease. So uh, there, there have been patients who have been sent to me with diagnosis of HS, and I, I, I see them a little bit further and uh, do for a little bit of workup, and they end up actually having Crohn's disease. So uh, particularly when there is kind of an asymmetric distribution or presentation. Okay. Here are some of the kind of rarer things that you would, you would think about. Um, it's a follicular occlusion tetrad we talked about. Um, just, just for completeness, say sometimes it can be seen, seen in the context of different spondyloarthropathies and pyoderma gangrenosum, uh, SAFO, and, and, and kid syndrome. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, morphology and distribution. So, um, so I think you guys are well equipped to make that diagnosis. Um, but about severity, so how do we, how do we, how do we grade uh, the, the disease once we've made uh, the diagnosis? So classically, there's just been this classification system called the Hurley system um, that uh, basically classifies the disease by mild, moderate, and severe, or stage one, stage two, stage three. And um, the, the best way to think about this is stage one are primary inflammatory lesions, um, whereas stage two and three have some component of scarring. And the scarring seen in stage three uh, describes that interconnected scarring as opposed to kind of individual discrete lesions. So if you have uh, you know, two scars, but there's intervening normal appearing skin, you're stage two. And with, if there's a connecting sinus tract underneath, uh, it's stage three. So let's take a look at some examples. So this is somebody with uh, stage one disease, so multiple inflammatory uh, nodules and some pustules, but they're discrete. And when they heal up, they'll heal up with some post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, much like bad acne. Uh, but they won't heal as a, as a, as a real scar. Um, here's a patient that, that uh, probably does have a little scarring. You see that little divot that's, that, that, that's there. But generally speaking, everything is still pretty discreet. So this person probably has a, a stage two. Um, this person has uh, multiple scars and, um, and at least stage two. And there's uh, that area towards the middle here where you're wondering, huh, could that be connected? And again, that's one of the challenges of this disease, that you actually have to go palpate this area and just try to figure out, is there a, kind of the subcutaneous connection uh, you know, for, for this? Um, so, so it's probably stage two visually, but again, you know, perhaps if they're interconnected, stage three. And this person definitely has stage three, right? So multiple uh, uh, scars and uh, very close, uh, and you can see how the, there's overlying scar, overlapping scars, and so definitely stage three disease. And this is stage three disease that's inflamed, right? So when you press in this area, you get drainage down here, you get drainage up here at the same time, right? So this is a, a stage three disease. So when, that's a very useful initial uh, step in terms of classifying the severity of the patient to, to, to get an idea of um, how severe these patients are, what type of treatments they'll tolerate, um, and how aggressive you want to be. The vast majority of patients are in stage one. And hence, you can see how most people are underdiagnosed because um, 
they might be just called a little folliculitis or some contact dermatitis in this area and just not really uh, follow through. I think by the time they get to stage two disease, um, I think that's the point where most people are starting to refer to, to, to dermatologists or specialists to, 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 for a second opinion, and obviously stage, stage three disease. Um, but if we can recognize them earlier, obviously the better we can intervene. So let's talk a little bit about therapy. Um, we're gonna you know, talk both, both about medical and uh, surgical therapies, and I'm gonna try to focus in on the things that um, are uh, the most current, so the things that are most exciting and most likely to make a difference, uh, and also things that we probably prescribe, that you, or you, you'll see prescribed, um, both on the medical and surgical end. So all these things um, have been done, and in some ways should be considered uh, for patients with HS, depending, again, on, on severity. So um, they can fall under these broad categories, antimicrobial, so back, you know, uh, basically antibiotics, uh, systemic uh, retinoids, um, and uh, anti-inflammatories. So anti-inflammatories, um, the current batch is, there's, is very popular to use um, anti-TNF-alpha inhibitors for stage two and three disease, and I'll, we'll talk about some of the data for that. Um, in the right patient that people ha have used, uh, uh, similar in the way they would use uh, birth control of spironolactone for acne, uh, but again, the data there is, is not very strong, uh, but it, it has been, especially for kind of more moderate and mild disease. Uh, there have been uh, papers describing the use of oral zinc to, to supplement and be helpful in, in, in patients, um, but again, those studies are from uh, are few and from a, kind of a single group that, from France. Uh, so in, in my hands, that hasn't been something that's been re repeatable. And for most people, I think when they've tried it, they haven't been. But it's out there. So again, if there's not, I don't think a, there's contraindication. I think there are some lifestyle issues that um, are being ex um, currently investigated. So I talked about how elevated BMI and smoking are related to disease, and particularly severe disease. But those intervention studies have not been done. So we don't know if patients, if they lose weight, will their disease get better? Because while, while a lot of patients are overweight, you know, these patients in particular, it's very hard to ask them to exercise and you know, to, to lose weight. Um, and and, and uh, even though that would probably benefit them for, for other reasons, um, uh, but we, and we don't know exactly. I certainly have patients who are rail thin and have this disease as well, so it's not an absolute requirement. And similarly for smoke, we don't know if smoking cessation will reverse the disease. But again, it is associated with um, more severe. And then, but it's probably worth mentioning, there's other reasons to lose weight and uh, stop smoking as well. But let me concentrate on those top three. So the first uh, um, order is to think about what is the best uh, regimen to put these people on. So uh, from the show of hands, how many of you have put uh, patients on either doxycycline or minocycline for these patients? Tet tetracycline class, okay. How many have used this combination of clindamycin and rifampin? Okay, much, much less. So classically, that's probably the best described uh, class, so the tetracycline class. It goes back from some papers in the 80s uh, that described tetracyclines um, to be uh, uh, relatively effective. Um, but interestingly enough, the, um, um, the, that paper, there's a follow-up paper to that tetracycline paper that compared topical clindamycin and tetracycline, oral tetracycline use, and they were roughly equivalent in their, in, the, in their efficacy. So if you think about that for a second, Topical clindamycin and oral tetracyclines, both are effective, but approximately about the same. Again, that's, you know, again, that's, that's, that's a very good uh, study from 
probably the, the, the uh, best uh, researcher in, in, in this field, again, done in the, in the 80s. So there's a lot of uh, time that has passed by before we had a, an advance from an antibiotic standpoint. So this actually is, I wouldn't say a game changer, but a, a, a step forward. So clindamycin rifampin, there are issues to use the, the, this set of medications, uh, obviously, the, you know, in terms of GI upset and uh, contraindications, particularly for patients uh, you know, taking something like rifampin. Um, but it has shown to be significantly more efficacious. So how we use this is we typically dose this at um, 300 uh, milligrams twice a day um, for both clindamycin and rifampin, uh, taken in, both taken together. Um, and for, for 10 weeks, so that's the typical. So when, when you look at this, the comparisons is, this, this started as a small series um, several years back, and this was kind of followed by this particular long paper, so that's why they looked at zero versus 10 weeks, that's the, at, at the, the time point they look at. So if you look at various scores from Sartorius, which is a clinical measurement for HS disease, similar to PASI in psoriasis, um, there's a significant drop in this number. Um, for stage one, two, and three disease, there's significant improvement. Um, pain scores are better. So there is something different about this combination, clindamycin or rifampin, um, compared to um, um, you know, tetracyclines, minocycline, doxycycline. So the, I think the main issue is whether or not uh, this is contraindicated or not. So I would think about if, if the patient can take this set of medication, I would, I personally use this first line if I was thinking about um, 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 antibiotics. There's nothing wrong with using a doxycycline, minocycline, but I think this is um, definitely better in the patient who can tolerate it. Dr. Dr. Yemek here, and the last author here, he is the, the original person who published the tetracycline paper, so he definitely believes what I'm telling you too. So, um, so this is his uh, series that basically um, uh, points out this, uh, the same this is very similar data. The only point that I kind of want to draw you to is, is, is towards the bottom here is that when he segregated by stage three, uh, one, two, and three, that there's actually significant improvement in stage uh, three disease too. That's actually, if you think about that, that is a, a very big leap, right? Because by definition, the difference, stage two and three disease have scarring. And if you think about that, how do you reverse a scar, right? So. So, there, so from, from these patients, you know, typically the course of what happens when you put them on antibiotics is that the disease gets a little better, but never completely becomes quiescent. But for some, for, for some whatever reason, even stage three patients, some of them will report from an inflammatory condition standpoint of remission. So that's actually was not reported before for, top, for, for antibiotics. So again, something worth thinking about. Um, let me kind of uh, switch gears to um, isotretinoin or Accutane. Um, so this was very exciting, um, you know, uh, maybe a decade or two ago that people were using um, uh, isotretinoin, obviously because based on our success uh, with acne and thinking about how we do this for, for um, uh, HS. Um, and so there's, there's promising initial reports, but this paper basically uh, made everybody realize that, that uh, isotretinoin was not the answer. Okay, so the summary for this paper is that for patients with severe, you know, mild, moderate to severe disease, probably only about 25% of the time does it work, right? So that's pretty miserable. That's not a very good success rate. Um, but the reason why it's still worthwhile if you look at the data more carefully is that if you look at who improved, so improvement score, again, segregated by mild, moderate, severe, 
the patients who tend to get the most benefit are the patients with moderate disease. So if you think about how we typically would usually some, somebody, given all the difficulties of prescribing something like uh, Accutane or Isotretinoin, we would tend to reserve these uh, medications for the patient who's the worst, right? So stage three disease, we failed everything else. Um, and I would say that if you're going to go down this route, you might want to consider it for your moderate patients as opposed to your severe patients, because they tend to do better than if once you've developed those interconnected sinus tracts. So, so anyways, that's my, my interpretation of, of how we should use, you know, sec, definitely a second line, maybe a third line agent, and more for moderate as opposed to severe disease. But it also, um, there's follow-up work here. So this again, the primary author here is uh, Dr. Jörg Bohr from the Netherlands. But he has this large a cohort of patients he's been following, and not just using um, uh, isotretinoin, but acetretin or seriotin. So he has shown that um, acetretin has actually more effective than isotretinoin. Um, so there are some issues with how he's dosing this. So the, the dosing is much higher. So you know, at least uh, 0 0.5, uh, 0 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Um, and the duration much longer. So he's oftentimes giving this uh, for patients for over a year. Um, and obviously there are issues with using acetretin, uh, for, for, for instance, in women of childbearing potential, you definitely don't want to do that because they can uh, you know, develop uh, issues with, with that, with toxicity for future pregnancies if they take alcohol. So, but that being said, for, for a patient, uh, this is potentially another avenue if they cannot, if they failed uh, you know, aggressive antibiotic therapy or other therapies that we've talked about. So this, there's, there's, there's hope uh, in terms of resurrecting some of this um, retinoid therapy. So that leads us to kind of what's the latest data for um, anti-inflammatories. So um, uh, as, as I mentioned before, there is an association with Crohn's disease and HS, and fortuitously, this, was, this association was discovered uh, many years back when a patient with both was treated uh, with uh, infliximab or Remicade at, at that time, and uh, treated their Crohn's disease, but fortuitously, the, 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 they noticed that their HS improved as well. So that obviously led to a lot of further studies uh, to, to this, and this is probably one of the, the, the best studied, uh, cited uh, studies uh, for infliximab therapy, uh, which basically shows uh, clinically that when they say before after therapy, this is you know, about uh, 12 weeks after initiation of therapy, this is standard dosing of induction um, five milligram per kilogram, dose uh, zero, uh, two, and six weeks, and then Q eight weeks afterwards. Um, so you can have significant improvement, again, of the inflammatory in, uh, component, so the redness, the induration, uh, the swelling, um, but the scarring will remain. And when you, if you look at uh, percent uh, that of decrease, so the higher the, 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 the bar, means percent of patients who actually got over 50% uh, improvement, this was about 25%, so not, not that great, but if you include a patient who improved 25% or better, you probably had about 80% of patients have that degree of improvement. So again, there are some issues when you're trying to quantify degree of, of improvement, right? So if you, if, you, if you looked at this, the way he reports this, this was prior to the, the invention of the Sartorius scale, or prior to the, to the adoption of the Sartorius scale. So, Again, the, the, a lot of the newer studies are more standardized in terms of uh, interpreting percent improvement, but about 80% of patients will notice some improvement with 
um, anti-TNF-alpha inhibitors. So um, the question is how long it lasts for. So with, with this dosing regimen is that you'll notice that there's a very uh, quick drop and then uh, there's a maintenance phase and then there was an observation phase where uh, they stopped infusing the medication over, over many weeks. And notice that uh, some of the patients, as you'd expect, would worsen again, but some, some patients main, maintained even after that. But there seemed to be a clear indication that patients do respond uh, for a prolonged period of time if they get the medication. Um, I performed this study back at the University of Pennsylvania a couple years back with uh, uh, Etanercept, and noticed that there was a, a, a kind of a, a similar improvement, but it didn't meet our, meet our um, primary assessment phase. So I would say overall, um, for etanercept, if you compare the different TNF-alpha inhibitors, just like there's different efficacies for these, these agents for uh, Crohn's versus psoriasis versus rheumatoid arthritis, um, etanercept tends not to uh, be as effective uh, for HS uh, compared to uh, infliximab. And this was uh, also, oops, also shown uh, to be true uh, by another group uh, um, at, a, at, a, at Penn State as well, at a higher dosing of etanercept. The other TNF-alpha inhibitor that's commonly used is adalimumab. So, so there is some data that seems to indicate that adalimumab um, um, does, again, sh show the significant improvement of this curve. And once you uh, stop using the medicine, that they, they, they tend, to, tend to rebound. So, Right now, there's, there are many ongoing studies for both infliximab and adalimumab to fine-tune the dosing. Um, again, because some of these patients have different body mass indexes than perhaps when these doses were standardized, uh, there could very well be some dosing issues. But there seems to be this recurring uh, pattern that you can get relatively acute control of the disease within the order of, of several weeks. And then if they're maintained on this medicine, that they, that, that they can uh, be able to, to have control um, even after that. The question is we don't know how long they have to be on these medicines for. Um, so we don't know if this is uh, for, or for a specific duration or it might be indefinite. That, that is also uh, being, being worked out now. So that leads uh, from the medical side uh, coming down to some of the surgical techniques that, that we can do in the office. So from, from that very first visit for the HS patient, um, you want to make that assessment of staging, right? So you want to think about is this stage one, stage two, stage three? And if there's a scar primarily there, you, you know that you have to at least start entertaining the discussion of some sort of surgical intervention because how is the scar gonna finally, you know, ultimately be treated by medical intervention? And so there are many different things that, uh, that uh, we can consider. First and foremost, um, what you should not do for treatment is incision and drainage, okay? So incision and drainage is palliative, Right? So if somebody has this big abscess, the reason why it hurts is because there's all that tension and swelling underneath the skin. If you incise it and drain it like you would an abscess, the patient will feel much better. But the problem is that because the primary problem is not driven by a bacteria, it will just recur. And now by introducing a scar and, 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 and you know, basically giving a plane in which the skin is no longer able to um, um, fuse quite as easily, um, you're basically accelerating the, the, the scar formation that's there. So not to say you cannot do it, but just realize you're doing it for palliation, right? If pain, patient's under a lot of pain, you might have to incise and drain it, but it's not gonna treat the disease's course. Um, um, an alternative, if you catch a, a lesion that's relatively early, is you might be able to do interlesional steroid injections, right? So 
uh, especially when, the, when, the, when the, there's relatively small inflammatory lesions. So you can put in intralesional catalog probably 10, uh, strength of 10, uh, somewhere between half to one um, cc, um, depending on the size of the lesion that, that oftentimes, like you would tr sometimes treat an acne lesion, but with a slightly higher dose. Um, local excision tends to recur as well because, again, they tend not to take care of the, the surrounding um, re-epithelialized sinus tracts. So when we're talking about removal, classically, we're talking about wide excision. So excision beyond, again, very hard to assess the, the clinical bounds, sometimes just by observation, you actually have to, have to palpate and, and feel these areas, um, um, and they can extend quite, quite far, much farther than you would think based on the degree of inflammation or redness that you see. Um, there are some deroofing techniques, so I'll, I'll talk to you about this, and there's some actually more detailed pictures that I'll show that's actually something that's easy to do, particularly for stage two disease, um, when patients are responding to medical therapy but have you know, one or two stubborn spots, and we'll touch upon some laser modalities. The deroofing technique uh, is basically, if you think about, let me see if I go forward, this, this picture here, where the epidermis is intact, and you have this tunnel underneath the skin, Again, this would never heal because it's epithelialized. So the idea of, of de-roofing is to take the roof off of the sinus tract, right, to, to open this up and create an open surface. Now, typically when we, when we ulcer, make, a, make an ulcer, if we do EDNC or, or something along those lines, um, those take a little while to heal. But because this, the floor of the, the sinus tract is already epithelialized, the healing time is actually surprisingly short compared to what you would think given the size of the wound that you're creating. Um, so if I go back to this study, most of the time, the time to healing is about closer to two weeks, whereas you know if you, if you cut something that's full thickness and allow to granulate in, usually people talk about healing times of closer to you know, six weeks in terms of having that have complete granulation. And for these patients, when, when, when selected correctly, um, most patients are actually very happy uh, in terms of uh, the procedure, and the recurrence rate is actually pretty low. So this is something where you can do this in the office, and let me go through a couple of pictures of what this would look like. So basically, here's a, an inflammatory nodule that you see, and you see the, the spot on, on, on 3 o'clock aspect, and you, and you palpate that area and you realize, oh, there's probably a little bit more fullness further beyond that. So you draw this area that you anticipate to be uh, the extent of the lesion, and you can do local um, anesthesia. This is, this is all under, done under a local uh, lidocaine. Um, and then you deroof it. So, these pictures are from uh, Dr. Bohr, who's the author of uh, this paper and, um, again, sees a lot of HS patients. What he does is uses loop cautery to, to essentially peel away the, the, those top layers of the skin, um, you know, simultaneously cauterizing and removing that skin um, to, until he defines the floor of that, uh, that, that sinus tract. So often when he's going through, he'll hit a little pus pocket as he's, he's peeling through. Some pus will be released, and he has to express it and it goes further until he sees that floor. Um, and then he does a, a very important step, so it kind of looks, looks like this after the, the initial um, uh, loop cautery. Um, he probes the ends, so that's actually very important. So remember how big that spot was and when he drew out. Oftentimes, even under non-inflamed skin, these sinus tracts can extend much further than you would think, and you wouldn't be able to feel it even, and you could only de detect the defect with, uh, by, by probing. So this actually requires extension of the, of the de-roof, of, of, of the de-roofing process. So that the lesion can actually be much larger than you'd expect it to be initially, okay? 
Um, so that actually ends up being a relatively large excision or, or deroofing uh, scar. Um, these patients actually end up healing relatively well, though. So, you know, so this is something, again, if you have relatively isolated lesion, um, uh, not complex uh, sinus tracts, that is, might be something you can actually relatively easily do in your office. Um, if you don't have loop cautery, um, oftentimes you can do, do just do a scissor technique. The advantage of cautery is that because you're cauterizing and removing skin at the same time, you get a much drier field. There's less blood, there's less pus around. So you can kind of see the, the floor of the, the, the sinus tract doesn't sneak up on you as quite, quite as quickly. But from a technical standpoint, you're just removing that, that roof. So that's actually, you don't require the loop cautery to do that. Um, uh, similarly, there's uh, using a blade of lasers. This one um, was uh, published by Dr. Hazen um, uh, a couple years back. Uh, using a CO2 laser, he can get a, a similar effect with a very uh, low recurrence rates. So he only had a recurrence rate of two out of 185 sites. They can be pretty big. So this is from his paper. So this is actually a very large lesion. You can see how much area he had to ablate. So this is not for the faint of heart, but it, this is an alternative, again, ablating that, you know, this is obviously he goes beyond the floor, but ablating that area just with a destructive laser, and this is how the area heals up. So not always requiring a visit to the OR if, some, if it's something that um, your group is comfortable managing. Um, uh, there, for more um, uh, non-scarred areas, uh, primarily inflammatory nodules uh, and, um, and, 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 and uh, abscesses that are smaller, less than a centimeter, um, actually ND YAG can work. So here's a, a, a photograph for somebody with less of that sinus tract, but more kind of discrete lesions uh, treated with NDAG. So that might be a useful um, application. Again, this is probably site-specific in, in terms of access to those lasers, but um, uh, there are groups that are doing this. This, is, this report came out of Detroit. Um, and the, this is just a, a, a comment uh, just to how, for us, how do we think about when we do refer these patients on for more uh, definitive surgery that we might not be able to accomplish in the office. So principles that you want to let the patient know is that uh, wide excision is important. So this, if they're asking or trying to get, well, I'm going to have the smallest excision possible, tell them that's probably not the way to go. That, that leads to high recurrence. You want to nip that in the bud. Two is that uh, sur surgery excisions tend to do much better in the axilla than, than, than the groin or the buttock area. So there is an anatomic location uh, uh, difference. Um, and, and probably the, the, the newest uh, thinking behind this is that, um, whereas before it was very common to try to uh, do flaps and grafts, or even try to close primarily these lesions, more and more we're finding that the, the good results come from the wounds that are healing by secondary intention, okay? And so, uh, so that's uh, helping the patient prepare for what postoperatively um, they might have to go through. So don't be surprised by that. The, the recurrence rates are much better now um, when the secondary intention is, 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 the, is the key technique for closure, okay? Um, so that, that, that kind of leads us to kind of what the current surgical thinking is. And anything you can do to decrease that, so this, I thought this paper was actually, the reason I cited this one was, was kind of clever, is that um, they're clearly, um, you, they had to cut out a pretty large area, but clearly there are, um, ways for them to decrease the size that needs to heal by secondary intention. So they actually did this, we're promoting this kind of star technique to decrease this middle part that is healing by secondary intention. So um, not to say that's common practice, but I, I, again, just to, just to emphasize the point that that primary area seems to do much better if uh, it's closed by uh, 
uh, by secondary attention as opposed to a flap or a graph. So that's becoming less and less common. Okay. So we went through actually a, you know, a, a fair amount of material talking about recognizing and understanding the disease, uh, being able to diagnose it, being able to stage it in, in, by severity, um, some, some of the most uh, cut, more cutting edge um, medical uh, treatments as well as how to apply kind of office-based surgical techniques so that we can do something um, in, in, you know, in-house. Um, but ultimately, you want to see kind of what the course is. So fortunately, the venereal disease, the people out there with this disease has stage one disease. Um, some do have stage two disease, um, probably about 20% are stage two, and only, only about 5% to 10% are probably stage three disease. That's fortunate, but even uncontrolled stage three disease can have sequelae beyond what we've talked about, and that's all what I wanted to make sure why it's important to recognize this early and to, and to treat. So if this is a person who developed massive lymphedema, um, because of this recurrent scarring that damaged his ability to, to control the amount of swelling in this area. So you can see how his, his at baseline, his, his scrotum is like this. So it's, it's, it's very, very, very extensive. That degree of edema can actually lead to these verrucous lesions. So basically, it's almost like a, um, a, a lymphostasis type of picture, almost like a lymphangioma type of picture that's developing. Although it's not, it's a reactive process where these there's this exophytic lesions that uh, shows fibrosis and dilated lymphatics in, in these patients, and and this oftentimes leads to uh, you know areas that are more easily traumatized, and it's confused, hard to follow these patients again because you know you're thinking could they have squamous cell carcinoma? S similar patient with this type of uh, uh, kind of cribriform scarring, these uh, exophytic lesions and chronic, chronic ulcers, again poorly controlled disease. And then for very severe disease, patients can actually have um, developing of, of squamous cell carcinoma um, in, in involving um, adjacent areas um, and spreading into the scrotum onto the penis. Um, and again, has these uh, dilated lymphatic areas. That's why they look so, so, so bubbly. So this is actually invasive squamous cell carcinoma in the context of untreated hydradenitis separativa. And then when you turned him over, you actually see that it actually uh, migrated uh, posteriorly to involve his uh, perineum and his, and his buttocks as well. So again, those, fortunately those are rare uh, uh, complications, but I wanted obviously to understand some what's at stake for us not to know who will progress and who won't progress and try to recognize and get these patients adequately treated as early as possible. Um, I think we need to recognize this as a chronic disease, um, so patients uh, uh, need to have those expectations. I find that most patients actually have very reasonable expectations. They, they've been dealing with this and for, for a long period of time, and even putting a name and having a diagnosis in somebody who understands the disease is very helpful and very therapeutic to them. Um, uh, I would stage it correctly and then look for ways to collaborate. Oftentimes, you know, the, the, tools, the toolbox for treating disease may lay, lay outside of our expertise, so okay to ask for help. To, to, to communicate with the surgeons, but know how to do it in a way that you know, is in the best interest of the patient. Um, there's some patient resources. I think the HS uh, Foundation has some, some resources and guidelines and actually has a, um, uh, some um, a referral network for patient, uh, for, for mainly, it's mainly a patient site uh, if they're looking for providers who are, who are pr uh, primarily interested in helping to uh, treat this disease. Thank you very much. For a CPT code, if you do it, if you do deroofing, um, so it's, uh, I do um, uh, uh, incision and drainage complex. Any studies on topical clindamycin with oral rifampin, since they're equivalent? Oh, so the equivalency study was not 
uh, uh, topical and oral clindamycin. It was, it was topical clindamycin and tetracycline. Oh, so, okay. So, um, so, there, so there probably is a difference between topical clinda and, 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 and oral clinda. Okay. Uh, I don't think that particular study has been done. The, the, obviously, the concern is that if you just use rifampin without adequate uh, company coverage that you're, you're, you, you select for organisms in, in a way that's different than if you had oral clinda. Okay. You had mentioned uh, using the oral clindamycin and oral rifampin for 10 weeks. Yep. Uh, what do you transition to after that? Because you also mentioned it's a chronic condition. Right. So. That's a great question. So um, I uh, tip. So in my hands, usually what happens is that um, most patients will respond significantly to to, to that cocktail. Um, will they respond completely to that cocktail? Um, it depends. So most patients will, will respond. Uh, to, to, to a large degree, but not completely, they might have a, a few larger and more chronic areas, hence those, th those more cystic areas that I kind of talked about. Um, and so those are the ones I tend to go after with some sort of uh, surgical approach, right? Either laser, either de-roofing, either surgery and excision. Um, but then if, if, if you can you know, treat 80% of their disease and have um, you know, 20% that requires surgical, surgical intervention, that's better than if they had to operate on all those areas initially. That's the way kind of I think about it. And then I usually do stop around 10 weeks. So I don't have people on this, you know, trickling out to, you know, four, five, six months. I tend to try to stop at about 10 weeks. You know, somebody might be on 11 weeks, depending on when they come see me, but I try to stop it. And for those patients who, are, who do well, I tend to transition them over to topical clinda. Topical oh, clinda. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. On those patients that you were showing that had their dystrophy and scarring completely resected with just open paniculus uh, present, mm -hmm. how often uh, are you following up with those patients? What kind of interval do you see them after the surgery, and what sort of time frame do you tell those patients to expect before they're completely healed? Right. So, um, so the, the time to healing is proportional to the size of that was taken out, so that, there can be variability in, based on the size. Um, generally speaking, if you're doing uh, those larger uh, Y excisions as opposed to this, the de-roofing, usually for secondary healing, um, uh, again, depending on the site and the size, you counsel somewhere about six weeks that they're going to be managing that. Um, when it gets to that large, I usually refer to the surgeon because it's usually an issue of anesthesia uh, you know, at, at that point. Um, so they're probably following up. I, I probably share kind of wound care a little bit with the surgeon. That makes it a little bit less onerous for the, for the, for the surgeon to, to take care of it. Um, um, so, but usually it's a little bit more frequent in the first, you know, I'll follow them after a week, the second week, uh, I saw them again, and then you start spacing them out probably every two weeks after that. Do you have any wound care creams that you like in that setting? Yeah, there's very, a little bit depends on the, on, on, on the, on the surgeon. So, so um, I, I've seen um, people who kind of go in and try to do like vacuum things and to, to the point of people just basically putting uh, Vaseline and just gauze. You know? So I've seen a wide variability. I haven't seen uh, those factors matter as much as, uh, say, the uh, size of the lesion, at least so far. But, you're, but there probably will be some optimized study at, at some point with that. Hi. Can you give a little more information about spironolactone, the dose, and your experience with it? Sure. Um, so those are, I, I typically, uh, you know, those are the patients who um, oftentimes report to have you know, premenstrual flares. Um, they oftentimes will have kind of more of a hormonal distributed type of uh, acne pattern. Um, uh, so I use it very similarly how I think about in, in the, the, the patient with you know, kind of more hormonally driven acne. 
the one small caveat would be that I tend to be a little bit higher in the dose. So whereas acne, I, I might start people as low as 25 milligrams per day. Um, uh, these patients, I, 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 I tend to start them closer to about 100 milligrams uh, per day of, of spironolactone. You know, uh, you know, obviously screening for things like, you know, renal function, making sure that they're not on uh, medications that could uh, cause them to, to increase their K, uh, their potassium, um, and then um, uh, monitoring blood pressure when appropriate, um, counseling them not to you know, try to get pregnant on spironolactone um, measure. You know, so those are obviously the other caveats, but for, purely for dosing purposes, I tend to start closer to you know, 100 milligrams per day. And then some patients I've, I've, I've gotten, especially ones that are a, a little heavier, as, as high as uh, 200 milligrams per day of spironolactone. What dose of zinc um, supplementation would you recommend? Yeah, I probably, personally, I probably wouldn't recommend it because, again, it hasn't really worked in my hands. Uh, but I think, uh, if I remember correctly, it's, it's uh, 90 uh, uh, milligrams of zinc, um, I think a zinc gluconate. I think that's, that's, that was the, the paper. It was a French study. I don't remember off the top of my head. I apologize for that. What do you think about using the combination of Bactrim, Metronidazole, and Rifampin? Uh, Bactrim, Metronidazole, and Rifampin. Um, well, I think there was a paper about it. Yeah, so I, I think that it was metronidazole rifampin, and the, but the other one wasn't Bactrim. I think it was it was it was a different different paper. It was it was it was also by a French group that 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 came out. So I guess what I would say is that the commonality, at least of what I've noticed about there have been multiple papers that have done combinatorial um, uh, antibiotics. The common theme to me have been um, um, rifampin. That's the same the one that, that's most common, and the other things have changed. So, um, so if you need to match something with rifampin, as long as it's not contraindicated, I would, I would maybe be cautious about matching something uh, like Bactrim with uh, rifampin, since they're, they're both you know, self-meds. But, um, but certainly, you, know, you, you, you could imagine doing that. I would think that rifampin's the, bit, the one that makes the difference, not less, less so the other combination, I would say. So, but, but there, you're right, there are, there, there are individual uh, case series that have been reported uh, with different combinations. I would say the one that has the largest data is clindorifam. So. Hi, great lecture, thank you. Um, asking about post-op, in the immediate post-op period after mm -hmm. uh, unroofing mm -hmm. um, for preemptive antibiotic use for infection, do you feel like you're having to do that or is that based I don't on think the size? I don't think it's required uh, to do it. I mean, I think how it usually, how this usually uh, works, at least in, in my case, is that I, I oftentimes have them on some sort of medical therapy, right? So unless they have just one spot, usually they are on, say, exam for example, topical clinda, or they're in the middle of their course of uh, uh, clinda rifampin, and then I would you know, say, well, you know, six weeks into it, you've responded beautifully everywhere except for the one spot. Let's, while you're still on antibiotics, deroof this one. So they're probably still on antibiotics, or I might extend their antibiotics another week or two while we get the deroofing done at, 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 at you know, 10 weeks. So, uh, but again, that kind of depends on the site. I'd probably feel a little stronger to that if I were working on a groin area as opposed to an axillary area. Um, but I've also deroofed patients where they're not on any antibiotics. I don't think it's required. It's just, you know, oftentimes they happen to be so if you can time it out. Okay, thank you. Hi, um, if the patient is using a topical clindamycin, do you ever recommend like a BPO wash mm -hmm. to help prevent resistance or any other mm -hmm. washes? Yeah, um, I do. So yeah, I mean, th I think in terms of the topical therapy, um, there, are, there are a lot of you know, different, uh, you, you talk to enough people, there are people use BPO wash, people use chlorhexidine, people use other different uh, you know, co combinations. 
Unfortunately, there's, they're not large case series or studies to, to that are comparative. Um, they make sense to me why they would work at some point. Um, but I, I think, you know, kind of drawing, um, uh, you know, our, our, our analogies from the acne literature, um, I think if you wanted to combine it with uh, uh, benzoyl peroxide, I think that makes sense. Obviously, areas of issues of irritation in those locations are a little different than the face. So I would, that to my mind probably might be limiting compared to the kind of the, the depending on the, the, the actual incremental uh, effects of uh, adding BP. Okay, thank you very much for your attention. I'm happy to take more questions. <laughs>